on May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount+. Plus. just like that we're back yet another week i'm josh pape this is the late kick extra podcast delighted and you guys know how rarely i use that word but i'm delighted to have you with us again this week we've got a ton to get to we've got over 30 questions again and we're going to try and get to them as expeditiously as possible quick thank you though you guys have poured those five-star reviews on us those written reviews and it helps so much it's gotten us a lot of attention from the high-level mustaches at CBS Sports, and that's just a fancy way to say management. I don't mean it disrespectfully, just a different way, but man, thank you so much, because that's really what matters, and by what matters, I mean giving you a product that you like. When I talk about stuff you don't care about, you let me know, thank you, and when I talk about stuff you do care about, you let me know. Now, the beauty in this podcast, the Late Kick Extra podcast, which we release once a week on Wednesdays, is this has gotta be stuff that you care about, because I'm only doing stuff that you submitted via email or Twitter DMs or YouTube comment. And this is just the spillover. For those of you unfamiliar with the format, we do Late Kick Live, which is live, as it says in the title, every Thursday night and Sunday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. That's a pretty quick, fast-paced show, though. So we like to take the questions that we can't get to there, and we do them in this format. It's laid back. It is very interactive. It is strictly mailbag. And here's how we do it. Let's get started. First up this week, Auburn Addict in the podcast review section. Question here is, what is your favorite part about covering a game, especially live and in person? This is a good question. Can't sum it up in a minute. So this will probably be the longest answer I give you. You guys, I have found love to be taken behind the scenes when you get to cover games. And I understand it because I always used to wonder what that world was like long before I got in it. So here's how it starts. Normal game day for me, uh, I'll be listening to either a local call-in show or a pregame show, if not the national broadcast of College Game Day during the drive-in. I really love walking through tailgates. I mean, if we're, you know, I, I cover the SEC a lot, and I'm always at the biggest game usually regionally. That's what my prior line of work had me doing when I was working in local news. So I was blessed to always be at the big game. So you're always walking into a big atmosphere. And when we're in Baton Rouge, walking through the tailgate areas, Alabama, walking through the quad, Auburn, walking, isn't any of these places really, walking through these massive tailgate areas, everyone is willing to feed you. Because if you're fortunate enough, a lot of people recognize you. And if you've said anything that's even just halfway complimentary, people are so gracious. And they want to validate their cooking by watching you nod your head. And I'm more than happy to do that. So you get fed really good walking into the stadium. We go in. This, as I've told you before, is kind of my favorite part, sort of the calm before the storm of a totally empty stadium. 
yet it's palpable. The anticipation, like I said, it's always a big game, the ones that I'm at. And so everyone carries themselves differently. The security guards, field maintenance crew, you don't have to even know what's happening that day. Just watch people's body language. You can tell it's a big game. Not many people get to see that, but we get to see that in our line of work. I immediately uh, will go to the press areas, press box, field suite, see who's there covering that game that I may know that day. I go to the freight docks or locker rooms about two hours before kickoff. I really love seeing teams arrive at the stadium. I don't normally see, to be honest with you, a whole lot of media around there. There'll be a few, but not a ton. Uh, maybe a few photogs, but not a ton. But I always make it a point to go check that out. I'll head back into the field suite and watch other games going on in the about hours worth of lead up until warmups start. One of my favorite parts is being able to stand on the field. I always watch linemen. I go and watch offensive and defensive linemen drills during pregame. Another little inside baseball thing here is sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, these playing surfaces are built on top of a platform. So it's not like if you're playing in your front yard, you're playing on grass that's on top of dirt, up on top of dirt, on top of dirt, on top of dirt. Well, a lot of times these playing surfaces are on platforms. I don't, I'm not an expert on it. I just, I know that's how they're built. When those linemen warm up, you can feel the pounding of that platform and it makes you feel like the ground's moving. And I don't mean that as a euphemism. I mean that there are really big bodies moving in conjunction and it feels like the ground is moving because you can feel it thump under your feet. So that's really cool. You obviously get to watch the pageantry and spectacle of the pregame buildup and all the tradition, depending on which stadium you're in, as to what they're doing in pregame. Seeing athleticism and speed at that level, that close, being on field level is something that you can't really describe unless you take someone down there. I've been fortunate enough to be able to have some of my buddies be able to attend games on the sidelines with me. Jaws on the ground every single time. You cannot understand it unless you've either played it or unless you've done the next best thing to me, which is stand on the sideline, being able to watch it. Here's the tricky part. The tricky part is I love food. You know that about me by now. And there's a huge line in the press box at halftime. So what you have to do is you have to map out your route from the field to the press box. And in a lot of college stadiums, it ain't easy. NFL stadiums are new. They're all new. So everything's easy. You go to an elevator, you don't have to go through the crowd. Well, Hey, man, at college stadiums, it's a lot different. So I got to get up to the press box, be the first in line to eat so I can get that out of the way, get back down to the field to catch the entire second half instead of five minutes into the second half. First world problems, I understand. And when those games are over, it's really fun to be down there and to see the on-field interaction, sometimes between players, but you just get a different perspective than that cable camera where it's just hovering over the field. After a game, when you're in the middle of that, that's kind of a different world. And then my favorite part of the entire day is when that game's over, usually at night for me, when that game's over, I go back out into an empty stadium. I set up three laptops around me. I'll just go sit in the crowd. I'll just, I sit in the bleachers. I don't even go back up to the press box. And I just watch the West Coast games and I start to gather my thoughts for the next night's show. Those are the most fun aspects to me of being able to cover games. Next up, Easton, podcast review. Before last season, would you have considered LSU a Tier 2 team? And do you see any teams capable of making that kind of leap this year? I have my eye on Florida, Texas A&M, and Penn State. What do you think? 
Well, the first thing that I want to point out here is I don't classify the teams in tiers because a team is a year-to-year version of a program. I classify programs in tiers. So yes, I would have called LSU a tier two program going into last year. I would argue they are a tier one program today. Having said that, looking around at which program is capable of jumping from tier two to tier one just in this upcoming season, I only see one, and that's Georgia. And that's if you don't already have them in tier one. See, I've told you guys recently, I got Georgia there. I don't need you to have won a national championship for me to think you're a tier one program. Having said that, a lot of your feedback indicated you would require that, which I understand. So I'm kind of speaking for you instead of for me. If you have Georgia on the precipice, they are clearly, I mean, if they won a national championship this year, they'd clearly ascend to tier one status. Outside of that, I don't know, Easton. I don't really know what Penn State could do this year alone, just this year, to warrant consideration as elevating into tier one. A&M, same. Florida, same. Those are good, solid programs. I don't know that they're bordering tier one right now. Uh, Both Chris and Rod asked a version of this. Which five stadiums do you think are the most consistently hostile? And for the stadiums that you've covered games in, how would you rank them for big game atmospheres? Obviously, that's a good question. It's so good that, guys, I want you to bookmark that. I'm going to use that as a topic on this Thursday's Late Kick Live. So in other words, if you're listening on Wednesday, tomorrow night's show. Matt in the podcast review section. You've spoken about Bo Pelini being back at LSU, but how do you feel about the transition from the 3-4 to the 4-3 and how it will impact things? Matt, I don't really care all that much about it. Not that I haven't paid attention to it. I don't care that much about it from a performance standpoint. I think it's really overblown in today's game. The fact of the matter is, regardless of whether you run a 3-4 or 4-3, you're lining up in nickel and dime personnel a vast majority of the time in today's college football. So even if you ran a 3-4, if you didn't know any better and you just turned on LSU games or whoever's running the 3-4 out there, I mean, when you're playing Alabama, you are in nickel and dime personnel at least 70% of snaps. So what that does to your front, obviously, depends on personnel package on the other side, but... To me, it's all semantics. And if you ask a defensive coordinator, I don't really think they talk all that much about, hey, we got a three-man front here, we got a four-man front here. Now, I understand it gets a little more nuanced. What I'm saying is, I don't think Bo Pelini runs around the LSU complex saying, hey, we're a 4-3 team, we're a 4-3 team. Well, here's where he does say it. Where he does say it is on the recruiting trail, because here's where it matters. And this is why I would always tell folks I ran a 4-3 or a 4-2-5, even if I didn't. Because number one, most folks can't tell the difference. And number two, it helps you to run a four-man front. When you run an even-man front on the recruiting trail, here's what happens. You can go sell it to edge rushers, defensive ends, and you can sell it as, this is the kind of defensive front that we allow you to pin your ears back and go after the quarterback. Whereas if you run a 3-4, and you're foolish enough to put it out there that you run a 3-4, Every staff you recruit against goes into the home of every jack linebacker type or defensive end type, and they say, you're just going to be a clogger in their defense. They're not going to let you rush the passer. Think about what that's going to do your sack totals. You really think the NFL is going to find you as attractive as they would if you came here and put up X number of sacks? That's where it matters, recruiting. Uh, Gators are stupid. That's not my sentiment. That is the name of the poster in the podcast review section. Uh, GAS, we will refer to you for future reference as, asks, who's better, 
Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, or Trey Lance? Do you guys know who Trey Lance is, by the way? Most of, some of you do. I don't know if it's most. North Dakota State's got him another quarterback that's going to go in the first round. So that's who Trey Lance is. Having said that, my order here would be Justin Fields, number one, Trevor Lawrence, number two, Trey Lance, number three. I think a lot of folks have two things that come to mind when you think of Trevor Lawrence. You think of the national title game against Alabama a couple years ago, and you think of the head-to-head against Ohio State. And understandably, that makes you vault Trevor Lawrence up to the very top of any quarterback list. And I'm not going to argue vehemently against it. I just think I saw a better year from Justin Fields last year. And I think that probably he's still in ascension mode to a certain degree. And by that, I mean, I'm not sure we've seen his ceiling yet. He's had one less year as a starter, obviously. But the head-to-head didn't sway me last year. Like Clemson beating Ohio State didn't sway me because I don't believe quarterbacks go against each other. They're never on the field at the same time. That's a lot better to sell headlines and clicks than it is to really gauge who's the better quarterback. I still side with Justin Fields. I think he had a better year last year against better teams. He had a better quarterback rating, and I think he's got a higher upside. Having said that, if you took Justin Fields, if you got the first pick and you took Justin Fields, you'd see a very happy Josh Pate being able to draft Trevor Lawrence, or Trey Lance for that matter. Just 25 podcast review section. What would be needed for a G5 conference to trade places with a Power 5 conference? Last year, the G5 finished with three top 25 teams, where the Pac-12 only had two. Things may shape up similarly this year. These are two different worlds. If the key was finishing in the top 25, a team like Boise would have long since made the jump. These are totally detached. The idea that maybe the American Athletic Conference will have twice as many top 25 teams in a given year as, let's say, the Pac-12, totally detached from what it takes to attain Power 5 status as a program or especially as a conference. Now, you can talk about what it does to the perception of a conference. You could do that. And to me, that's a much more in-depth conversation that we'd probably have on a Late Kick Live episode, for example, where you could go 10 minutes on it. But I will say this. I'm not one that gauges conference strength using polls as the best comparative indicator of conference strength. I'll say it that way. And the reason is because it has so much to do with strength of schedule. You know, like if, for example, I used the Texas A&M example. Texas A&M was a pretty good program. They were a pretty good team last year. They played a borderline AFC East schedule. I'm only halfway joking about that. And so there was zero chance they were going to finish ranked in the top 15. I had an odds maker buddy just run the numbers really quick for me. I said, give A&M Central Florida schedule last year. How many games are they favored in? And he said 12. They'd be favored in 12. I don't know how many they'd win, but they'd be favored in 12. Point being, if A&M played Central Florida schedule last year and they went 10-2, and two, as the same team, just different schedule, they went 10-2, and two, they would have been ranked top 15 to end the year. That tells you everything you need to know about the validity of of polls as it relates to measuring the real quality of a conference. A conference is who you play. And if you play more good teams, chances are someone's racking up more losses. The more losses you have, using typical poll logic, the less likely you are to be ranked, and so on and so forth. DG43 podcast review. Why do some of the best college football quarterbacks fail at the NFL level? Tim Tebow is considered one of the greatest college football quarterbacks of all time, 
but he only had limited success in the NFL. Well, I would say this. Most quarterbacks fail in the NFL regardless of what they were in college. So let's get that out of the way first. The NFL is really, really, really hard. But there are a variety of reasons here. Sometimes you played against inadequate defenses, maybe in an inferior defensive conference at the college level, and you got some inflated numbers and a lot of the right people got drunk on those numbers and you vaulted way up big boards inside NFL war rooms and mock drafts in the media world and you never should have. So there were false expectations built for you. That could be a reason. You could be injury prone. You could have gone to a franchise that was terrible and gave you zero chance to succeed no matter how good you were. You were just in a no-win situation. But really, most quarterbacks fail when they do because of either those reasons or they're just not good enough. The, the pro game is just harder, much harder than the college game. And every guy that you play against at the pro level is a pro, obviously, by definition. That's not the case even in the best conferences in college football. That's one of the many reasons I always laugh at the could fill in the blank compete against the worst team in the NFL in any given year. And the answer is always a resounding no because even the best college teams have on their starting 22 two to four guys. Even the very best ones, they got two to five guys that aren't going to go play pro ball at least. The worst pro team, all starting 22 are pro caliber players, many of whom are veterans. So do you understand what a non-professional caliber right guard would look like against an actual NFL defensive front? You didn't ask that, though, so don't let me go down that road again. Uh, let's go with No Regrets. That is spelled N-E-A-U-X. No Regrets. Podcast review. I was too young to appreciate the 07 college football season, but I always hear how wild it was. Could you give me a week-to-week -week schedule to rewatch the 07 season, I want to appreciate just how wild it got. This is a good question. I'm saving this one for the future. This is one of the ideas I have if, let me find the nearest wood, if, and hopefully this doesn't come to fruition, and I'll just answer this on the podcast, but if we have a delay in the season, I have a what I call a rainy day content folder. Yeah, it's a really, really specific industry term, obviously rainy day content folder. That's just the bucket you reach into if you need to fill shows and you don't want it to be stupid content. This is one that I have in there, that 07 season. And I don't want to burn that content quite yet because I think we could do a really fun full feature on it. And the other part of this is a coach that was heavily involved in the shocking nature and wild nature of that season I've been in communication with and we have been in communication with in the last 48 hours about doing a longer form interview about that season. So I have two reasons to hold off on that one. Really good question, though. And you're right to uh, want to dive into that 07 season. Greg, podcast review. If the concern surrounding COVID-19 is player safety, how is playing only conference games any different? And if playing less games suggests less player-to-player -player interaction, how does anyone justify expanding the playoff? Well, Greg, I don't justify expanding the playoff now or ever. I want to be perfectly clear on that. As I told our Luke Stampini the other day, though, and Brandon Marcello for that matter, I understand what reality is, and I am willing in a one-year kind of a one-off scenario to just absolve myself from this, hold my nose, accept that we should do it. 
Now, the question you asked is valid. We need to understand the variables in play here. Here's what the proponent of expanding the playoff and not having it be a high-risk environment would say to you. They would say, we can control the environment at the playoff level. We would have long enough between the end of the year and the playoff to be able to bring teams in two weeks early, have them fully quarantined and isolated, much like the NBA is trying to do right now. And that's a good case study, by the way. And you don't let the teams leave until you've crowned a national champion. Now, under this scenario, we could very well see the semifinals played at the same site. Like, that's one of the ideas I've heard tossed around. I don't know how feasible that is from a cha-ching monetary standpoint. I also don't think that serious conversations have even been had about this yet. I just don't. I think that they, I think it's very possible that they get the plane off the ground before even worrying about where and how they're going to land it. Let's just hope for a clean takeoff. Next up, BM Beck 72 podcast review. Florida just announced a home and home with NC State, continuing a trend of Power 5 out-of-conference opponents in addition to our annual game with FSU. Starting in 2022, Florida has at least two Power 5 out-of-conference games every year for the next decade, and in three of those years, we play three Power 5 out-of-conference opponents. It seems like we're seeing this more and more. Do you expect that trend to continue across college football and is it a precursor to Power Fives eventually breaking away from FBS? Everyone always says that second part, uh, BM, and I'm not sure I disagree with it. I just think that there's a lot more to that. It's a lot more nuanced than just this is what's going to make it happen or that's what's going to make it happen. In reality, it's probably a layer, a pretty significant layer to that onion. But here's really what this is all precipitated off of. It's a, an expanded playoff. And believing that once every conference has one guaranteed spot, and I'm against all this, but whatever, with every conference having a guaranteed auto bid, no one worries about their strength of schedule being so detrimental or, or so, it, what is the word I'm looking for? Um uh, cannibalistic. There you go. They don't want to cannibalize themselves. Well, now if you guarantee they'll have a seat at the table, okay, they don't worry about that as much. And then you have the spirit of competition. You also have strength of schedule that will matter more than ever. And you seem to be seeing a situation where people understand they'll be rewarded for that. And really, these teams have always wanted to do this. They've always wanted to play against each other more. It's just always been met with trepidation of, well, we don't want to schedule ourselves out of a chance to win a championship. Well, maybe you don't have to worry about that so much anymore. So yeah, I think you're on the right track there. Irish Politico podcast review. The Cover 3 podcast suggested Notre Dame is an elite quarterback away from being a national title contender. Do you agree? And is Tyler Buckner that guy? Lastly, the fans want to know where you get your white t-shirts. Isn't that a great question? This isn't just a normal garden variety t-shirt, people. These are luxury t-shirts, which means they cost $11 instead of $3.95. There is a company called Built. They are not paying a dime, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time advertising for them here. B-Y-L-T, Built. Really good products. Love them. I'm not always wearing their products, but most of the time, if you see me in the white t-shirt, and that's pretty much all you guys see me in, that's what I'm wearing. I'm not a flood victim. I just choose simplicity. That's not how I want to uh, be known. The guy with the flashy fashion sense. And so far, I think I have avoided that. I'm pretty sure I have. 
as for the first part of this question, the Cover 3 podcast, that's one that Barton Simmons does with the guys at CBS Sports. Really good stuff. I've listened to it for quite a while. They said the same thing I've said. You heard that on the Cover 3. Our listeners have heard that too. I agree wholeheartedly. Yes, Notre Dame, for that matter, Penn State, Michigan, Notre Dame, they all are in the same or under the same umbrella when it comes to this. Get an elite quarterback in there. I have compared them favorably, their current plight, to what Clemson was like for a while. Good program, but then, not Taj Boyd. I I view them as starting to be truly elite when Deshaun Watson came in there. And Deshaun Watson came in there, and all of a sudden, Clemson went from a nice, cute story to, whoa, they're competitive in the fourth quarter with Bama for a championship. Next year, whoa, they just beat Alabama for a national championship. Whoa, look at all these guys coming to Clemson to play now. It kicks a snowball down the hill. You get it right at quarterback, you can get it right everywhere else quickly. That's why, like you said, with Tyler Buckner, my answer to is he the guy? I don't know. I hope he is. J.J. McCarthy at Michigan? I don't know. I hope he is. And you can find plenty of folks to tell you that those are the guys. You also have to watch the transfer markets every offseason. I think that'll be more and more a storyline in the years to come in college football Don't just think because you don't have any big-time five-star quarterbacks on your immediate horizon that you don't have any five-star talent on your immediate horizon. They just may come from Texas Tech or just picking names out of a hat. Like They may transfer in from somewhere, and you got a guy who wasn't even on you. You think Georgia fans were talking about JT Daniels this time last year? Of course they weren't, but yet he is eligible for them now. Go Blue 12 podcast review next up. You said you think Nebraska could surprise people because expectations are lower a year after everyone picked them and they disappointed. Similarly, could this finally be the year Michigan breaks through and wins the Big Ten after they failed to deliver when everyone expected it last year? You're going to need some very good quarterback play. Very good to elite. That's where you have to be in that range. So I'll ask you because my answer is probably not. And my question is, do they have it with Dylan McCaffrey? Do they have it with Joe Milton? Remember what I said, very good to elite. Does that offensive line instill confidence in you right now? I don't see it this season, but that's the entire nature of this question. Not seeing it is what could lead to the very nature of this question being uh, validated. And that's the same thing I was talking about with Nebraska. A lot of people wanted to pick them. I didn't last year, but a lot of people picked them as this sleeper. And in reality, I think this is the year they're probably more set up to surprise some people than they were last year. Michigan, I don't know if they're set up for it this year. It's next year that I would look towards. Keegan in the podcast review, best defensive coordinator in the Big Ten. My answer is Jim Leonard at Wisconsin. I don't hear him talked about a whole lot nationally. I think Jim Leonard does a really good job for what they have on that roster at Wisconsin. Other good names there you could answer with. I would probably be better off to do a top five, but you give me Jim Leonard at Wisconsin. I'd be okay with that. Next up, Cole in the podcast review section. If you were a prominent head coach and the Oregon and Washington jobs both opened and they offered you those positions, which one would you choose and why? I'm going Oregon here pretty quickly. Nike means a whole lot. Brand means a whole lot. Here's what really matters to me. I probably, you know, I'm a big fan of scenery, so I couldn't go wrong being at the University of Washington. Like, I've seen the pictures. That place is awesome. However, Oregon's not bad either. That's a pretty good postcard town. And secondly, I grew up in the South. I know that kids in the South, I know Oregon resonates with them. 
I don't know that Washington resonates with them. In fact, I know it doesn't. And that's not being disrespectful. That's just reality. There's no reason for a kid who grew up in um, Valdosta, Georgia, to know about University of Washington. And really, on the surface, there's not a reason they should know about Oregon. But yet, there is. Because they have, through Nike, in large part, built and established a national brand. And that allows me, if I take that job, to immediately have recruiting inroads in places you would never expect Oregon in a generation prior to be able to get into. So I would have to go Oregon there. Cordy, 58, podcast review. I thought it was telling when LSU did not go after a transfer quarterback when it comes to what Orgeron thinks of Miles Brennan. How far do you think he can carry the program? And if he doesn't pan out, will it affect quarterback recruiting? Also, what do you think about the Scott Linehan hire? Uh, the Linehan hire I love. I'm a big proponent of stacking as many former head coaches and former NFL guys on your coaching roster as possible. You never go wrong doing that. As for Brennan and what Orgeron thinks about him, I think it is a very shrewd observation that they weren't more aggressive on the transfer market. And I can tell you right now, believe me, they had opportunities. Some of you close to that program know exactly what I'm talking about. They had opportunities. There have been a lot of big transfer headlines out there that LSU could have reaped the benefit of if they wanted to. They didn't. They didn't want to make a move. They, and by they, really, I mean Ed Orgeron, he thinks he's got his guy there. If he thinks he's got his guy, I'm fine with that. He knows his roster way better than any of us do. And he's, he's had this confidence, not even quiet confidence, a pretty outspoken confidence about Brennan for quite a while now. I've paid attention to that. Skoda 35, podcast review. Where I live, high school football just is not followed all that much. What's it like to live in a true high school football town where everyone is fully invested in the program? Is football really like a religion as they say it is? Yeah, it is. You get in the right parts of the Deep South, you get in the right parts of Texas, it is the heartbeat of those small towns. Here's what stands out to me. You know, in college, like if you're a big-time college football fan or an NFL fan, everything about all the teams is public. They all play on TV. Every one of them has a huge internet presence. So you can watch every snap of every game that every team on your schedule plays. In high school, it's not like that. Even today, it's not really like that. So you rely on word of mouth. You know, like if you live in um, Norcross, Georgia, and these teams don't play in the same region, but if you live in Norcross, Georgia, and you're playing Peach County, what you're doing is you're at the Cracker Barrel Saturday morning, and you guys in Peach County are talking about Norcross. And they got a defensive end that's being recruited by Vandy and NC State. And they got a couple other ones on that offensive line that have got big D1 offers too. Here's the offense they run. Here's what I've heard about him. But all the scouting reports in those high school towns, it's word of mouth. You talk about it at the gas station. You talk about it at the bank. And oh my goodness, if you could see what high school pep rallies are like. This is usually Friday afternoon leading up to a game or Thursday in some cases because coaches don't like pep rallies on Friday. These are like rock concerts. It's off the page. They've got um, pyrotechnics. They got smoke machines. They got lights. They got music. It is like a full-blown rock concert. It's like Kiss comes into town and sets up once a week. It is a spectacle. I've been a part of it in high school, and I have seen it covering. It is a spectacle, but it's beautiful. Everything revolves in those towns around Friday. Every bit the passion that you feel in the college football world and the NFL world 
It exists. It's just smaller pockets, but it exists. If you're in a true high school football hotbed town, they are not kidding you when they talk about last one out of town, turn out the lights. You know, if your team's on the road, everyone's on the road with them. It is really an amazing thing to witness. Kyle F. 98, podcast review. If you had to choose today, which program's future are you more optimistic about, Texas or Michigan? Kyle, this is a good one. I'm using this one on the Thursday show. That's about the third time I've said this. Obviously, you guys are writing my shows for me, and that's usually uh, an indicator that we're going to have good shows. But I'm going to cover this question. Texas versus Michigan. Program comparison right now. Which one am I more confident in? I'm going to cover that on the Thursday night Late Kick Live. That is, by the way, on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us because when we come back, Will is going to ask a question on the other side of this ad break. Remaining unbiased, how in the world does one do that? Well, Will, I'll tell you right after this. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hey, thanks for sticking around, I told you. Those ad breaks don't last long, and they help us pay the bills around here. The lights are still on because of those ads. So let's continue. I told you Will had a question, and here it is. Podcast review section. Your ability to stay unbiased is phenomenal. These are Will's words, not mine. Every host tries to act unbiased, but it's written on their forehead. I've been trying to figure out your team for the past 14 months, but I'm as clueless now as I was on day one. How do you do it? Well, Will, it's not really all that difficult. Be unbiased. That's it. But here's the thing. I've got heavy bias. I'm just pulling for you. This sounds very corny, but I'm being authentic as I can be right now. I'm pulling for you. You're the team. So it's not Auburn or Michigan or Penn State. It's you. I want as many big teams as relevant for as long into the season as possible. I want the big programs rolling. I want everyone winning. Obviously, that's impossible, but it's a very simple formula. You got to understand it from a business aspect. You know, when I first got into sports talk radio, I may have had that fandom about me. Not important to talk about which teams or programs I'm referring to, but very quickly, you know, the first time your team loses a game, the team you grew up rooting for, first time they lose a game and you come in there Monday and the phones are ringing off the hook and you walk out of there knowing you just killed a show, you just knocked it out of the park, you realize all of a sudden, um, you know, I'd love for my team to win, but my team just lost and I think I just made some money off of that. Am I supposed to feel dirty about this? And so then you go over time, and it's not like you don't still have in the back of your mind certain teams you pull for. Sometimes I'm very out in the open about it. Hey, I was out in the open about LSU last year. I was on them 
early in the season, in the preseason. A lot of people, you know, chastised us for it. So I was very vengeful all season long. I felt like I was riding right along with Ed Orgeron. Um, but in by and large, it's it's not a it's not a charade. It's just you do I'm doing to me what's best for business. And it also would be foolish for me to wave a pom-pom on the show. Why in the world would you want to alienate anyone? But here's what I've also found, and a lot of you guys have commented on this. Even if you knew, like let's pick a team out of the blue. Let's say um, uh, Kansas. Even if you knew I was a Kansas football fan, you, I don't really think you guys care about that so much. You care about whether I'm honest and have integrity in the way that I talk about your program, my program, any other program. And as long as you have that, it's pretty irrelevant who you're pulling for, as long as it doesn't affect the quality of the product. And we don't let it affect the quality of the product. I've got a lot of safeguards against that. Number one, it is me re-watching and listening to every second of content we produce. And number two, having other people who I trust to tell me I suck if I do, having them listen to everything too. That would be called out in a heartbeat if it actually existed. So we eradicate it from our content pretty quickly if it happens. Next up, that was a good one. Next up, Steve on YouTube, along with 73 Mustang in the podcast review. Both of you guys asked a version of this question. And the question is, what would it take to see the SEC move to a nine-game conference schedule? Well, probably expanded playoff for reasons we mentioned earlier. And even then, a lot of minds changing. And while I would love to see the SEC play nine conference games, that's just the fan in me. I understand it from their point of view. I totally empathize with their risk-reward. What's the value proposition for them? I mean, they already are viewed as the golden goose in this sport right now, and they are. They've earned that. They get benefit of the doubt, as they should, with an eight-game conference schedule. Why would they voluntarily make things tougher on themselves. Now, ultimately, you, the fan, control this. If you stop showing up, and hey, attendance figures have dipped a little bit across the sport. The SEC has not been immune to that. Ultimately, if you told them the current season ticket package I'm buying that I'm spending this much money on, I'm not getting enough return on my investment from, you better add one more quality game per year or I'm out. If enough people did that, that's where it would come from. But that's probably not happening anytime in the near future. And so, Having said that, the answer would be either seeing a whole lot of people voluntarily do it, or more than likely it comes when playoff expansion comes, if it comes at all. Next up is Lame Lowball 11 probably has commented every show we've had so far, and I appreciate it just as much now as I did when we first heard from you. Would you be in favor, this is the question, would you be in favor of adding more variables to the college football playoff ranking system than just the 13 committee members? I personally would like to see more members or perhaps different groups of members making separate polls and then adding in a computer ranking like the S&P Plus and then averaging all of those out to create, to create the one true ranking. I don't have a problem with this at all, lame lowball. I don't have a problem with it whatsoever. Here's what I would want to add. I would want to add, I've talked about this in the past month quite extensively. However we do it, I just want to make sure that we add an element in to determine true strength of schedule. And what I want to do is I want to involve a Vegas odds maker power rating format for that. 
not to rank the teams. Don't misunderstand me. What I want to be able to do is I want to be able to take your schedule and whereas a typical pollster or a committee member just judges how good your wins are based on your opponent's win-loss record, a Vegas format digs a little bit deeper into that. We'll use Texas A&M, for example. Texas A&M, again, like we've said last year, they lost several games. They played Clemson. They played LSU. They played Alabama. It's insanity. Well, the point is, you didn't get a whole lot of credit for having a win against Clemson because they were a four or five loss team, whatever they were. And if that same team had played UCF's schedule, they go 10 and 2, 11 and 1, all of a sudden you get a ton of credit for playing AM. Well, what's the reality? They're the same team. You're just getting a whole lot more credit for playing them because they played a softer schedule in scenario B versus scenario A. That's how most humans on a committee or most pollsters look at it. That's not the proper way to determine your strength of schedule. A Vegas odds maker understands that. And so the way they format their power ratings, I don't want that playing into ranking the actual teams. I want that played into ranking true strength of schedule. That's my big fight. I'm off to the side. Everyone else is fighting about how many teams go in the playoff. And I'm just over here saying, can we just make sure we understand strength of schedule? Nicole, podcast review. I heard you say you're from Columbus, Georgia. I'm from Huntsville, Alabama, but I moved to Georgia. Have you ever been to Lake Martin? Oh, yes, Nicole, many times. Lake Martin is gorgeous. Now, I'm more of a Lake Harding guy because that's just a lot closer. It's over on the Chattahoochee River. But, man, the best memories I have from these places are in this time of year, actually, in mid-July, mid-August. We call it convective season because those are those afternoon thunderstorms, pop-up variety, popcorn variety. If you have one, it's cumulonimbus. But if you have multiple clouds like that, of course, the plural will be cumulonimbi. That's not true, but I call it that anyway. So when you have the cumulonimbi all over the place, and then you'll have a downpour at like 3.30, 4 o'clock, if you time it up just right, and things start clearing up right around sunset, you will not, this, this side of the Rocky Mountains, you will not see prettier sunsets than you will down on places like Lake Martin or Lake Harding in Alabama and Georgia awesome sunsets. And it really helps sometimes when you get those big thunderstorm complexes move through earlier in the afternoon. Jackson in the podcast review, will you do your top five betting plays every week this fall? Also, are you worried college football players may opt out of their seasons like NBA and MLB players are? Yes, on the betting plays. We've got our own unique way that we do that. We've been successful the past six years in a row by successful. I mean, well above 52.4% against the spread well above. Documented, by the way, not just making it up afterwards. As for the second question, I'm not concerned about guys sitting out in the fall if we have a fall season. I am very concerned about sitting out in the spring to the point where I don't know how feasible a spring season would be. Next up, Ryan in the YouTube comment section. What do you think it's going to take for USC to fire Clay Helton? Ryan, I don't know that it's going to happen. To be honest with you, brother, I don't know. He was probably going to lose against Alabama. That's not going to happen. Also, we have to keep in mind now, you have the lack of football revenue to worry about because you either have a, an unabbreviated season, if you have a season at all, and you don't have revenue from you know, gate admissions and everything that you would normally have in a normal revenue-generating year. How are you going to pass that off? See, this is why I said it. If you were going to make a move, you needed to do it last year. Even though you had a new AD in there, president didn't want to make a move. I get all that, but 
I think USC may have handcuffed themselves to the bed rail, so to speak, because now the plan may have been, all right, we'll make a move next year. Okay, well, here's next year. And here's the set of circumstances that fate has presented you. Now, how are you going to make a move? Oh, and by the way, what if Oregon continues to shine and they continue on the trajectory they're on? They're just a rocket ship and they further distance themselves. And all the while you're sitting around saying, well, I mean, we can't make a move. No one can fire anyone right now. I think that may be where USC is. Peyton, YouTube, how long do you believe Alex Grinch will stay at Oklahoma? That's the defensive coordinator there. My answer is as long as he wants to. That's one of the best in the game. You'll see in due time, give him time, got to overhaul that defensive roster. What I don't know about Alex Grinch is what his future plans are for his career. You know, most people eventually have head coaching aspirations. So, I think Alex Grinch is at Oklahoma as long as he is not a head coach. And that's a guy, imagine imagine his value. Like if he turns Oklahoma into a top 15 defensive unit, you're in, you're out. What is he worth? What price is too high for you Sooner fans? If I could tell you, I'm going to give you a guy that's going to put a top 20 product on the field. Top 15, top 20. Doesn't have to be top 10. With what you can do offensively, how much would you pay for that? How much wouldn't you pay for that? Cat Train in the email inbox. What college football programs recently or in the past have overachieved the most? Really good question. We're going to put this on the Sunday Night Late Kick Live, which, by the way, is on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Marketing, baby, marketing. Next up, Wesley, email inbox. You've mentioned in a number of your earlier shows that Georgia has been one elite quarterback away from beating Alabama and winning a national title. Yet, they had an elite quarterback in Justin Fields for a year who proceeded to transfer to Ohio State and led them to the playoffs. I know Jake Fromm brought a lot of leadership to the Georgia locker room, but why do you think Georgia didn't turn to Justin Fields? Wesley, I was filling in for Barton Simmons, who, congratulations, by the way, just had a little girl. And I was filling in for him on the Barton and Bud podcast with Bud Elliott. We recorded that today, which is Tuesday. And we went really in-depth on this. I would encourage you to go check that out. I mean, honestly, what else do we have to do right now? We're killing time, each and all of us. And we, we didn't really intend to dive deep on this, but we ended up doing it anyway. There are several factors, several factors. We talked about comparing the Jake Fromm-Justin Fields situation, battle, whatever you want to call it, which looks so clear now. We compared it to the Jacob Coker-Jameis Winston quarterback battle at Florida State a few years back. Jameis Winston goes on to lead Florida State undefeated to a national title. But Jimbo Fisher had told several people, and the media too, leading up to that season, it was a neck-and-neck battle, Jacob Coker and Jameis Winston. Now, at the end of the year, everyone looked at Jameis Winston and they said, wait a second, Jacob Coker was, you were comparing him with this guy? Look at how great Jameis Winston is. Yeah, but here's the thing about that. That's with the benefit of hindsight. Coaches don't get the benefit of hindsight. They don't get to see how the decision would turn out before they make the decision. So I'm never one to second guess because now we fast forward to the From Fields deal. I'm with you. I see what you saw last year. I see that Justin Fields' ceiling was infinitely higher and his potential was infinitely greater than Jake Fromm. I see that. I think I saw it back then. But potential and being able to have it validate on a football field, two different things. And so 
I'm not telling you Fields wouldn't have shined at Georgia. What I'm telling you is I remember some of my Georgia buddies. I'm going to step on some toes here. As I told Bud, I remember some of my Georgia buddies back when this was going on. And they were more than happy to traffic in the message board rumor community about Justin Fields. And he had a maybe a character concern. There's just something that... You know, everyone knows, but no one can tell anyone else about him that's keeping him off the field and is the reason Jake Fromm is our starter. And those same people now are willing to bash Kirby Smart over it. I'm not having that. Okay, you don't get to, you don't get to play both sides of the coin. Anyone looks like a genius when they have hindsight on their side and when they get to play both sides of the coin. No, no, that's why, with all due respect, that's why you're paying for a ticket instead of people paying tickets to see you, coach. So, Kirby Smart's not immune from criticism. I'm, he doesn't need me to stand up for him. What I'm saying is that's part of it. And the other part is this. I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but I do know Kirby Smart had been wired a certain way at Alabama. Alabama, under Nick Saban, during Kirby Smart's tenure there, had a very risk-averse attitude at quarterback. That's where you got that whole game manager moniker from. It's because Nick Saban played guys that weren't going to lose him games, knowing he had a superior roster and he could he didn't need a quarterback to carry his team on his shoulders. In fact, he viewed that as a weakness because it was a stress point. He didn't want to he didn't want to make his team so vulnerable that one injury at quarterback could derail everything. No, he wanted a guy good enough. He wanted a formula where several guys were capable of pulling off what Alabama needed to have at quarterback. Kirby Smart saw all that stuff and he thought he was going to go to Georgia and build Alabama East. And then he started to. And so imagine him. Jacob Eason goes down. Remember how this played out. Jacob Eason goes down week one, 2016, 17. Which one was that? And then Jake, it was 17. Jake Fromm comes in and they take him on the road to Notre Dame. I was at that game in South Bend. And they win it pretty dramatic fashion. And what you have to be thinking is, okay, we just saw this guy's absolute floor. We weren't even planning on playing him this year. And he came in and got us to a national championship game, it's reasonable to expect that he will progress 20%, 30%, year two, year three. It just didn't happen. It didn't happen the way that they thought it would. And Justin Fields, as it turns out, ends up transferring out, and he's a stud. That's the way it goes. But the point is, if you're going to make a call on this stuff, make a call when it happens. If you were vocal criticizing them when... They first made the decision, I'm fine with it. But don't be a guy who backs the decision and then when the decision doesn't work out, criticizes the decision. I'm, I'm not on board with that. Tierrick, email inbox. Hypothetical scenario. Urban Meyer is looking to be a head coach again. Hypothetical, by the way. That's what he said, hypothetical. Let's say Urban Meyer is looking to be a head coach again. Both USC and Texas are open. Which job do you think Urban takes and which job do you take? I'm taking Texas. That's nothing against SoCal. I'm just more of a Texas guy than a SoCal guy. I also don't love paying taxes. I'm okay with paying them, but you got to love paying them to go to Southern California. I don't love paying my taxes. I, I just kind of do it. So I'll take the Texas job because of that. I Just culturally, I mean, it's a better fit for me in Texas. I don't like traffic. I hate it. And so I need to be out in the open. I need to be able to within a 10 or 15 minute drive, be out in the middle of nowhere. And I don't know that I can do that in Southern California. However, most people are not like that. 
Most people are not hermits. Most people do not mind that. Most people would be attracted to the lifestyle that you can live in Southern California. So I don't knock that. And I love visiting California. I've been there several times. But notice what I said, visiting. I enjoy visiting. And so with all that being said, I don't know. I have no clue. I talked to Urban Meyer a couple of months ago for 20, 30 minutes. This didn't really come up. Um, If you want to see that, by the way, it's still on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. I don't get any sense about his lean one way or the other on that. It's a good one, though. Oh, here's another good one. I am leading the Sunday show with this question. David, email inbox. It was a lengthy email, but by and large, here was the question. Why do so many SEC fans loathe Gary Danielson? And a bunch of you do. Look at you shaking your heads right now. I see you there in the truck. I see you on the lawnmower shaking your head like you're a bobblehead. You know what? You all pick on Gary Danielson too much, and I will defend this man's honor Sunday night as much as someone not related to him will defend his honor. I've got some feelings on Gary Danielson. I've got some feelings on him. He doesn't need me to stand up for him either, but I've always had some feelings about Gary Danielson. At least, let me, let me rephrase. I've had strong opinions about Gary Danielson. There we go. All right, feelings erased. Colin on Twitter, less than 10 years ago, the Pac-12 was ahead of the Big 12 and ACC thanks to depth outside of Oregon and Stanford. What is the second tier of the Pac-12 outside of, obviously, marquee wins by USC and Oregon need to do to bring back public perception in the conference? Colin, there is no easy answer to this, brother, because here's what the second tier of the Pac-12 has to do to catch up in perception. They've got to make upgrades to compete with programs elsewhere in college football, cashing checks two to three times per year as big as the ones they're cashing. Think about being Utah and watching Ole Miss cash that SEC paycheck every year. I mean, what are we talking about here? Like it, it from a revenue, from a financial standpoint, it's like we're not even playing the same sport. It's great to talk about what we want to do, but uh, I mean, all of it costs money. And that's ultimately the big concern. It's the big concern with all the complaints out West. When you hear him talk about the Pac-12 network and the the risk that was taken there that they don't feel has paid off. And there have just been a lot of decisions that have gone sideways. And there are a lot of concerns pre-COVID about the direction of that conference and the trajectory they're on relative to the SEC and Big Ten. And that's before the next round of TV deals come up. So the answer, Colin, is... I don't know. On a long-term basis, you could do anything in any given year, but on a long-term basis, I don't know what the answer is there. All right, really good stuff there. I sped up the tempo a little bit to get more questions in, and Tani, who is uh, editing this before you hear it, I think that worked, brother. So again, a reminder, it's just, it's just a nice, very subtle, but very passionate request for you. Give us those five-star reviews. And leave us written comments. The best way to submit questions, I don't think I said it on the front end, in the actual podcast review, just, you know, instead of saying, hey, great show, or you suck, you're terrible, say that. Either way, I'm fine. But also attach a question to it. That's a good way. JoshPate706 at gmail.com. I'm happy to correspond with you guys about anything. And I'll tell you this too. And I welcome this. A lot of you are college age. We have a lot of young kids who listen to our show 
A lot of you are graphic designers. A lot of you are writers. A lot of you have a passion for and and have an eye for wanting to be involved in this business. You reach out to me eight days out of the week if you want to. I'm not telling you I have opportunities for any of you, but it never hurts to establish correspondence and reach out. So I'm always happy to talk to you guys. I've I've this week alone been on Zoom calls just on my own free time with a bunch of college kids just talking about career advice and just answering questions. I'll gather about four or five of you and I'll set a time once we gather about four or five that have asked to do it and I just have Zoom conferences with you. And I'm happy to answer your questions as long as my battery stays charged. So that's another way to get in touch with me. Twitter is always open, at LateKickJosh. Really happy to see you guys. Give me a follow there. You can submit questions. My DMs are open, whether you follow me or not. Or you could submit questions on the YouTube channel in the comment section. Under every episode of Late Kick Live, there is a pinned comment. It says, reply to this comment with questions for the podcast. You can get me there too. I got to get to bed. We got a busy day tomorrow. About the time you're listening to this, I'll be doing 47 interviews and shows and everything else under the sun. However, could be worse. I could have to do real work. And so I'm happy to do this instead. I'm really happy that you've taken the time to listen. Uh, really appreciate the traction and the traffic that you've given this product and a lot of the other stuff that we're producing. So until next time, for Tani on the editing side, I'm Josh Pate on the running his mouth side. We'll see you guys next time. Have a great rest of the week and God bless. shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.